Hey, Tam. Hey, Scott. So I cover Congress. You cover the White House. But before we both did that, we were both member station reporters. Where we covered politics. I started at KQED. I was at WOSU in Ohio, KPCC. And I also worked at KQED. And before that, I was at WITF in Pennsylvania, both places I was covering the State House. Okay, so all year we've talked a lot on the podcast about state politics. And sometimes we would bring on reporters from local stations onto the podcast. But even when we didn't, the very first thing that we at NPR do every time there's something interesting going on the local level is check out what the local member station is reporting on it. And and because of the way that the whole public radio network is set up, NPR is in communities across the country at the local level, in the city hall, in the state capitol. Which is pretty cool if you think about it. It So all of that is to say that if you were to go out and support your local public radio station, which we really want you to do, then you're also, by extension, supporting the NPR Politics Podcast and everything that we do. But even aside from that, it's such a great thing to support because you are supporting fact-based public service journalism that keeps you informed about the community that you live in. And you can do that, support the podcast, and support your local station all in one place, and that is donate.npr.org politics. Donate.npr. .org/politics. We can't achieve what we do. We can't achieve this mission without you. And now, here's the show. Hey everyone. My name's Scout. I'm from Maple Shade, New Jersey, and I'm about to take my last drive up to graduate school before I get my degree in nonprofit management. My gift for graduating is going to be a PBS tattoo that goes right under the beloved NPR tattoo I have on my arm for everyone to see. This show is recorded at 2:36 Eastern on Thursday, December 13th. So things may have changed by the time you listen to this episode. But you can keep up with all of NPR's great reporting at npr.org. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. That's dedication. That is. That is a loyal follower. Hey there. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup. Busy week in Congress. Congress may have reached bipartisan consensus on criminal justice. And Nancy Pelosi has all but secured returning to the speakership. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Kelsey Snell. I also cover Congress. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. We do not get to say this that often with our Trump-centric political universe, but a lot of stuff happened in Congress this week, and there's a lot to, to work through. So, Kelsey, we're going to start with you and uh, a big deal that came together in the last day or so. Obviously, sexual harassment has been a huge problem in Congress for more than a year now. Early on, as all these stories broke about all sorts of issues with with different lawmakers and lawmakers resigned, there was agreement, we need to get something done. But then nothing happened and nothing happened and nothing happened. And now something has finally happened. Yeah, it was a whole lot of waiting and then a flurry of activity. Uh, Last night, they announced that they had an agreement. Um, House and Senate negotiators had reached a deal on a plan to update a 1995 law that basically everybody agreed was out of date. Under the old law, If there was a a harassment claim made against them and there was a settlement for the person who made the uh, allegation or a court decided in their favor, taxpayers paid for that. And it was only after a really long and arduous process that these kinds of settlements were even happening. So in the the middle of the Me Too movement, a bunch of members of Congress got together and decided they were going to change things. But then for over a year, after both the House and the Senate unanimously approved their bills, things just kind of sat there. And then today, the House and Senate quickly, just less than 24 hours after the new bill was announced, unanimously approved the new bill. 
So what's in it? What does it fix? Well, that that problem of having taxpayers pay for settlements is gone. Uh, the new bill would set it up so that members would be personally responsible for harassment and retaliation cases in a situation where the court finds in the favor of the accuser or if the member reaches a settlement. I have a question about this. I mean, clearly this changes life for congressional staffers, mm-hmm. people who might come forward with these accusations. Does it help Congress's image with the public, or was it just too late? Well, it may be a little late for this to happen. I think when I talk to lawmakers, they say that the most important thing for them was to get it done before a new Congress comes in, because this would create that whole new liability for members. And they want it to be very clear, if you're a returning member or a brand new person, what your liabilities are. And they want to get this new training and harassment seminar process going so that staffers know what their recourse is. With all the attention of me to several uh, House lawmakers either resigned or said they weren't going to run again. There was this stretch where a new story kept coming out. But but to put this in perspective, how frequently was this happening uh, without it getting much attention? Well, it's really actually hard to know because there hasn't been public reporting of this. And only since the big Me Too movement started did we actually get some reports on this. We only found out last year how many cases and settlements there had been. We didn't actually get a full number. We just got a dollar figure. So since 1997, the Office of Compliance processed cases totaling at least $15 million for settlements about harassment or discrimination allegations. That's a lot. That's a very big number. But it's important to point out that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission estimates estimates that about three quarters of all people who experience harassment never talk about it with a superior. So the information just wasn't really getting out there. And this bill would change that. This bill makes it so that there has to be public disclosure of any settlement right when it happens and an annual report of activity. Mara, why is it that it always takes till the very end of a congressional session to get stuff done? I mean, everybody agreed that this current system was a joke, and yet it took till like weeks left. Yeah, you know, on this one, I really don't have a good answer because it wasn't like it was a political hot potato. It wasn't like there was some important part of one party's base constituency that was against this or for it. It just really, this one is a mystery. This was about Congress getting its own house in order. And it just took them a long time. I mean, really, as far as I know, it really did come down to differences about liability. And the senators I was talking to kept saying that this has traditionally been more of a House problem than a Senate problem. And they point to the fact that since 1995, there haven't been any settlements from senators and that there have been a number of settlements and uh, judgments against House members. So there was a little bit of dragging of feet on the Senate side because they didn't feel like this was necessarily an issue that they were creating. But senators are pretty powerful. They're just a hundred of them compared to, you know, House members where they're kind of like a dime a dozen, no offense to the House. <laughs> like, I, I guess maybe they haven't had settlements, but it certainly is possible that something may have happened untoward that we don't know about. Oh, yeah. And House staff certainly have said that um, in my conversations with them is they say that the settlements may not be there, but that doesn't mean that the wrongdoing doesn't happen. All right. So as that plays out, there's there's movement on another big bipartisan issue, and that's a bill dealing with criminal justice. Aisha, President Trump has talked a lot about this. 
Can you remind us who the key players are and what they're trying to do? Because it is a little bit of an interesting mix of people here. It is. So in the Senate, you have Senator Grassley, Republican, and then you have Senator Dick Durbin, who is a Democrat there on the Judiciary Committee. And they have come together with a bipartisan group of senators to come up basically with this compromise. We talked about it a bit about this before. It's the First Step Act. And so basically what it would do is it would reduce sentencing for certain drug offenses and it would provide like programming and incentives for people who are already in prison to take to help them when they are done with incarceration. And so this group is working together and trying to get this passed through the Senate. And this was something pretty unusual. It was bipartisan. It was spearheaded by the White House. Yes. And since opioids, I can't think of another big bipartisan thing that Donald Trump has gotten passed. So this is a big win for him, at least so far. And and I should say, so the main person in the White House that has been pushing this, and I, I think most activists will say the reason why this got pushed by President Trump is because Jared Kushner, this is an issue that is close to his heart. His father went to prison for tax evasion and some campaign funding stuff. And because of that experience, Jared Kushner wanted to do something about criminal justice, prison, you know, issues. Is there a big picture summary of of the types of sentences that are affected and how much they're reduced by? So the big thing is that you had this three strikes and you're out where you would get life after like three offenses. Mm -hmm. And so what this does is that it would bring it down from life to 25 years and the second strike is down lower. So that's a big difference. That's a big change. And then it also allows for people who were sentenced for crack cocaine. There was this big disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. So they addressed that a few years ago, but it was for the future. And now if you were basically it's retroactive. So now people who were convicted of crack cocaine a long time ago can apply if they meet certain criteria to try to get some relief on their sentence. The question, the big question that this raises in my mind, and maybe Kelsey can can provide some insight here is, is this the beginning of things to come? In other words, this was bipartisan in some way, low-hanging fruit. This issue has been around for a long time. Everybody has known that there was a bipartisan consensus behind it. There are a couple other issues, drug pricing, maybe infrastructure, where you could imagine having similar bipartisan legislation. And I guess the question I have for Kelsey is, do you think that Congress's bipartisan compromise muscles have been so atrophied that they can't do this very often or they can do it again? Well, we do talk a lot about how Congress has been split over the past couple of years, um, and they get into these big knockdown, drag out fights. But honestly, they've actually gotten a lot done. I know that that's probably not what people would expect to hear, but they got most of the spending bills passed, and they did the big opioid package, and they, they there has been a lot of agreement on some things. But I would say that you're right. There are basically only two other areas where we can expect that the White House agrees with Congress. It's less about getting Republicans and Democrats to agree sometimes up here. It's getting Republicans, Democrats and President Trump to agree. And so you need that magical moment where the president actually wants to work together. And it's hard for me to always know when that's going to happen. Right. And it's certainly not going to happen between now and the end of the year because they're totally at odds around the shutdown. I mean, even up here on the Hill, I will say that most of the Republicans 
Republicans I talk to do not see the sense in the position the president has taken on the shutdown. And every single time you talk to somebody, leadership or otherwise, about the spending bills, they say, if it were left up to us, we could get this done. All right. A lot of action on Capitol Hill this week. So much so we didn't get to all of it right there. We had an episode earlier this week. We did a long episode looking at this possible government shutdown that we could have next week centered around that meeting between Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and President Trump at the White House. All right, Scott, I know you've got some reporting to do, so we're going to let you go. But please don't go too far because we have to bring you back for the end of the show when we do Can't Let It Go. All right. See you guys later. All right. And we'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is complete wireless protection for your home that can be self-installed in under an hour. There are no long-term contracts and no hidden fees. CNET, the wire cutter, and PC Mag have all named Simply Safe their top pick for home security. And Simply Safe protects over 2 million people every day. Learn more about Simply Safe and get a special holiday offer on their systems at simplysafe.com/nprpolitics. Support for NPR Politics also comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/nprpolitics. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLS ConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Looking for the perfect gift for the public radio and podcast nerds in your life? NPR t-shirts, caps, totes, mugs, pet products, toys, and puzzles are just waiting to be checked off your holiday shopping list at shop.npr.org. And we're back, and now we have Danielle Kurtzleben with us. Hey there, Danielle. Hello. And you're going to be joining us for a big conversation about Nancy Pelosi. Right, and it's been a big week for Nancy Pelosi. We had a podcast episode on Tuesday about her clash with Trump on live TV. Mike Pence was there. Chuck Schumer was there. I don't know if you guys saw this. Just um, Yeah, just a little bit of uh, <laughs> attention on those 17 minutes yeah. of interesting television. But then aside from that, she has shored up even more support for her run for Speaker of the House. So now we're going to take some time to walk through this week and what it means going forward for her. So let's start with that Trump meeting. Aisha, <laughs> what what happened on Tuesday? Well, so at, at this meeting, they brought the cameras in, which they typically do, and it's just a quick photo op. But here, they kind of, uh, Trump and Nancy and Chuck, or Chuck and Nancy, they went at it. I also know that, you know, Nancy's in a situation where It's not easy for her to talk right now, and I understand that, and I fully understand that. We're going to have a good discussion, and we're going to see what happens. But we have to have border security. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. Elections have consequences, Mr. President. It was almost him jabbing back at her, though, right? Because it started out where he was making that big, long opening statement full of things that she definitely disagreed about. Right, because he, yes. tr- he was trying to say, I would have the votes for right. this border for this, wall. Yes, yes, yes. Well, after that whole big opening statement, he turns to Pelosi, and then Pelosi immediately starts talking about a Trump shutdown. And yes. that's really what set him off. And that you should not have a Trump shutdown. Uh, you have them at oh, the oh, White House, Trump, Trump shutdown. Oh. And yes. so as soon as she said Trump shutdown, he was like, what? What did, what did you say? Uh, what? Uh, well, but, and, and not long after, he he defaulted to his kind of primal position, which is to be as tough and 
tough sounding and brave as he can. And he said, yeah, I'll shut down the government for the border wall. Sure. You know, I'll take it on myself, which is, of course, exactly what Chuck and Nancy wanted him to say. What what really struck me about this whole encounter was that this was Trump's idea to bring in the cameras. Chuck and Nancy thought they were going up to have a private conversation with the president, maybe with a little pool spray at the beginning or the end. But Pelosi was able to use this live TV, which is usually the perfect venue for Trump to show that he's in charge, making deals, whatever. And she really turned the tables. Not only did she give him a nickname right at the beginning, or at least she called the shutdown the Trump shutdown. So she gave the shutdown a nickname, which immediately got a rise out of him. Mm -hmm. But she also was able to hold her own. And when he tried to mansplain to her about how things work in the House, (laughs) she came back to say, if you think you can pass it in the House, why don't you put it on the floor? And and she said, and you can't because you don't have the vote. Well, she has the benefit of being correct there. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, so now we are going to have her in charge for two years. I mean, has she shown that she can be Democrats foil to Trump and be an effective one for two whole years? Well, foil, I think that he wants her as a foil. I think she showed that she's a worthy adversary, not a foil. (laughs) Yeah. She came off ladylike, but that's kind of one of the tactics she's employed throughout the entirety of her career. She will be in public a very put forward a very reasonable face a very calm face and she talks all the time about how she wants to be the reasonable person the person who who is coming to the table no matter what the negotiation is but then she knows how to have a knife fight in private you know donald trump has made his political career, as short as it is, on dominating people and humiliating them and getting the best of a of a fight and I think she showed in that meeting that she can play on his turf and and come out ahead. Okay, so we've already talked about that earlier this week. Let's move on to what happened yesterday, where Nancy Pelosi secured enough votes to win the speakership by promising to hand over the power in four years. You know, a lot of people opposing her were asking her why she should be the leader when, you know, so many of the new members of Congress got into Congress by promising to their voters, hey, I'm not supporting Pelosi. So does does this address those concerns? Is everybody coming away happy here? I'm not sure if everybody's coming away happy here. Um, and it's entirely possible that the majority of no votes from Democrats against Pelosi will be new members. She did make this deal where she would only be speaker for one more term. It, it would set it up so that anybody in leadership could only stay in a leadership job for three terms, and then they would have to move on. Can we just pause mm-hmm. for a minute? She is 78 yes. years right. that's kind of, that's the huge con- like... Wait, the huge concession she made was to step down when she's 82. Yeah. yeah. That's a joke. This, this is not. A goal. That is the huge concession that she made. So yes. it's not really for her. Right. This isn't aimed at her necessarily. Right. Oh, it is. It's other. aimed at her. It's aimed, it's aimed at, her. at her, but it shows how she outplayed them yet again. I mean, but, you know, we, we talk about all these people, old people who are running Washington. She is the oldest, but she is the wiliest. Well, and it's also really interesting <laughs> that the caveat here is that the exception is that somebody could run for a fourth right. term in leadership if they can get a more than two-thirds of the vote from Democrats. And her aides will happily point out that she has won every single time she's won a leadership position with more than that. So there's a bit of an escape hatch for her if she decides that, you know what, maybe I need just a little bit. Maybe I really need to stay (laughs) until I'm 90 years old. (laughs) Right. Now that she's kind of sewn this up by agreeing to these term limits, has she really addressed those concerns that she's not in touch with the, the younger people, that she's not some of the new people coming in felt like she wasn't liberal enough. She's too cozy with corporations and all of that stuff. Like, is, has she put those concerns to bed? 
she talks about this all the time, that no matter what she does, she will be attacked for being the wrong kind of Democrat. She's fine with that is basically the way she explains things. And no, this doesn't fix that problem. But I actually think that the meeting that we were just talking about fixed some of her problems in a different way. It made people who were uneasy about what kind of leader she was going to be feel a little bit more secure that she was going to stand up to this president. She wasn't just going to pass legislation. She wasn't going to, you know, go soft on him. It was a really strong signal to a lot of people that Nancy Pelosi is here and she is in charge. Let's zoom out a little bit. We are just coming off of this year when women, especially Democratic women, have had this absolutely record-breaking year at the polls. And so, you know, Pelosi, the first woman speaker, being you know, locking this up again, really seems to be a sort of fitting cap to that. But I'm wondering, especially for those of you who have been watching Congress for a while, is Pelosi being received differently now than she was when she first claimed the speakership? You know, we'd really have to go back and do a kind of careful study of the coverage of her ascending to the speakership the first time. She definitely was not on the cover of Time magazine, I can tell you that. So <laughs> right. She'll tell so, you that, too. Yeah, she will yes. tell you that, too. So, you know, I think that the historic nature of her first speakership probably was not given the weight that it deserved. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think it's it's fitting. And it's also significant that the counterpoint to Trump, the balance of power to the president now is a female person. Right. Trump is an overtly heavily yeah, masculine yeah, guy. Yeah, macho, I mean, like macho-ness is his stock and trade, or at least pseudo-macho-ness, or some kind of macho-ness. But she kind of took on this, and she said that she felt like she was a mother. Uh -huh. <laughs> she was trying to be the, the mom meeting. in she the She was room. trying to right. be the mom in the room. Right, between Schumer and Trump. So there was also this kind of, this dynamic of her kind of playing this up of she is in charge, but in a almost, I don't know, is it non-threatening to be the mother, to be the grandmother? Is that more non-threatening? Uh Possibly. I mean, it's it's certainly a familiar role. I mean, but but this does bring up sort of speaking of familiar, there's this there is this thing going on right now where, you know, especially young millennial women, there's a certain amount of worship of, you know, people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elizabeth Warren. And like and I kind of saw this in the memification of Nancy Pelosi yeah, this week she got with, that. Yeah. with the sunglasses and so on. I mean, th this this strikes me as a relatively new phenomenon of holy cow, I need to cross-stitch RBG or something. <laughs> or, or, no, or like... <laughs> yeah, it's like this, it's this idea. And I wonder, is it, you know, RBG, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, maybe Maxine Waters? Like, they're older women, so is it almost that it's, for society it's more acceptable for them to... They're not seen as being overly ambitious? Mm -hmm. Well, I also think that it's important to remember that Pelosi kind of wore a hero's cape for Democrats when she got the Affordable Care Act through. She was really sure. credited for... Right, she heaved it over the finish yeah. line. Yeah, and, and at that time, she was hugely popular among Democrats. And while we didn't have the internet to create memes, she was she was having a moment. She was viewed as this this feminist icon. And right. I think that we forget that sometimes because we've been so wrapped up in the, the minutia of this past election cycle. But this Fair. is not new for Pelosi. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just a couple of quick points. Number one, she's been demonized by Republicans. Republicans and campaigns for many, many election cycles. That attack lost some of its power this time. And 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 some of the discomfort with her among some Democrats have been that she's not a good um, face for the party because she's so easily demonized. Okay, first of all, that lost some of its power. Second of all, the Democrats do have an age problem. Their leadership is too old. They've kind of missed a whole new generation of, of, of 
people. But that should not be conflated with Nancy Pelosi, you know, and and she is extremely competent and she's the right leader for the moment. But that's kind of separate from the Democrats need for a new generation of leaders. Uh, So maybe this is a time where experience and having experience is being looked at as a huge plus because we've had a lot of novices. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I totally agree with that. All right. Well, with that, Mara, I know you've got to go, but thank you for joining us. Thanks for having Uh, me. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, can't let it go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discovery's new series, Border Live, documenting the work of law enforcement on the U.S.-Mexico border, as well as the real lives, real moments, and real stories of those that live and work in its remote stretches. This six-part multi-platform series, hosted by veteran anchor Bill Weir and special correspondent Lilia Luciano, will track the action and stories as they unfold. Border Live will broadcast live every Wednesday, beginning December 5th at 9 p.m. on Discovery. Support also comes from Stitcher. Headlong, Surviving Y2K is a new story from the team behind the hit podcast, Missing Richard Simmons. Surviving Y2K goes back to the hysteria at the turn of the century when the world braced for disaster. From an evangelical family preparing for the apocalypse to the coders who fixed the millennium bug, follow their stories through New Year's Eve 1999 and learn what happened at midnight. Find Headlong Surviving Y2K in your podcast app and subscribe now. Hey there, we're going to get back to the show in a second, but I wanted to give you another reminder that if you like what you hear, you can support this podcast by supporting your local public radio station. Just go to donate.npr.org politics to support fact-based journalism. Okay, back to the show. And we're back. And we have Scott Detrow back with us. Scott, welcome again. Hello. So, yeah, it is time to end the show. So we will do what we do every week with Can't Let It Go, where we talk about one thing we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Aisha, we've been talking about Nancy Pelosi a lot. Let's keep that going. Yes. So for my Can't Let It Go this week, it is... Nancy Pelosi, not Nancy Pelosi herself, but it's her coat. That coat that she was wearing when she <laughs> left the meeting. Capital T, capital M. Yes, with the president and Senator Schumer. She was wearing this awesome, I call it red, but I don't know if it's a, it's, it's it was kind like of like a. Brick color. It was like a brick color. It was basically, it's a Max, is it Max Mara or Max Mara? I am not. I'm not a label person. I believe it's more. I don't know. But anyway, it's a (laughs) coat. And they've actually, they are like bringing it back because I think it was like from the 2013 season, Mm -hmm. like it, or it hasn't been around since then, but there was so much demand for it uh, because it was just like this power coat, really. It really popped. It was very sharp looking. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And then I think it was the way she wore it. And then she threw on the the shades as she was leaving just to kind of give it that, that extra oomph. I think that really sealed the deal. (laughs) I saw like a a side by side of her. In the shades and Peggy Olsen for Mad Men in that last scene, the roller skates in the shades. <laughs> I saw that circulating on Twitter. It's pretty good. Yeah, so it's like 
I mean, and, and apparently Ian Griffiths, who is the creative director for Max Mara, told the New York Times, you develop an emotional relationship with the coat like nothing else in your wardrobe. I can imagine why Miss Pelosi chose to wear it for this important moment. And I'm honored. So he's saying that clearly this coat helped her. Can we just quickly fact check <laughs> that exactly. more emotion to your coat than anything else? I am a coat person. I love coats. I am known to have six winter coats. Well, I have two now. Oh, and that was a big in. update for me from yeah. the one coat I wore everywhere. Yeah, I have like one. But I would love to have more. <sighs> I'm a winter coat obsessive. It's one of my very favorite things. Winter coats and boots. All right, so I'm going to go next. Okay. And we are going to circle back to President Trump's ongoing search for a chief of staff, which despite <laughs> his protests otherwise has not been going so well. Uh, there had been an early rumor that Trump was interested in the president of the New York Yankees who said he was quite happy Running the most successful franchise in sports and not interested. But there is another contender from the world of baseball as of this morning. uh, And that is one-time all-star Jose Canseco, better known these days as one of the early steroid abusers in baseball and many other things. He knows how to testify before Congress. Sure does. Sure does. Political experience. Jose Canseco tweets this morning, hey, little buddy at Real Donald Trump. Little buddy? It goes from there. Hey, little buddy, real Donald Trump, you need a bash brother for chief of staff. (laughs) Got a secret New York plan already. Also worried about you looking more like a Twinkie every day. I will buff you up with daily workouts. DM me. Hashtag Yes, we can Seiko. Oh, my gosh. Well, first, what is his plan, his workout plan? His workout plans have not been on the level in the past. So they work. Oh. I guess they work. It depends how you define work. And, and, and then, what's he did now, De did he, was he one that dropped a dime on others, or was he caught up? Because, you know, they don't. we don't like oh, rats yeah. over here well, at the White House. That's they don't the problem. Like rats. That's his, this is why he can't do the job, because he wrote the first tell-all book. I was going to say, he's got an entire book about that. It's called juiced in case you didn't get it it's dishy so anyway dm jose canseco but again he'll probably write a tell-all book so the job's probably not for him (laughs) (laughs) danielle all right i'd like to start my click by asking you guys what have you accomplished today i got out of bed um it's a good morning okay that works yes Yes. That's and, it. and well, I I fed a like a hungry one year old who was like up from like four to like seven in the morning. I dealt with that. That is, that is that is a hell of an accomplishment. I'll give you that. I I ask you because I have a tweet from an economist named Paul Romer, and the tweet runs down one of his recent days. Schedule for December tenth. Breakfast. Tell parents about surprise noontime event. Ten a.m. Rehearse for award ceremony. Noon. Get married. 4.30 p.m., receive medal from the king. 7 p.m., go to dinner with my new wife, our families, and 1,200 others. Because Paul Rober, you see, won the Nobel Prize for Economics and got married in the same day. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff to do in a single day. I like that he surprised his parents, too, as a part of it. Yeah. Wait, about in. getting married? Or like, I don't know if you know I won the Nobel Prize. Because that would be like a passive-aggressive family thing. Like, I guess you didn't notice my Nobel Prize. I don't know if you read the, the papers. Just bring it to dinner. Um, I don't know if you read FT, mom and dad, but um, no, but like, no, it was a surprise about the marriage. But yeah, he got married to... Wait, so they were not surprised about the Nobel Prize, but they were surprised about the marriage? Yes. They knew the Nobel Prize was coming, but they didn't know the wedding was going to happen that same day. Right, because they announced the Nobel well ahead of time. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so Paul Romer, there was an article in the New York Times then about this, which... 
didn't include these juicy details he included in the tweet about surprising his parents. But yeah, it's says that, you know, on the same day that he got the Nobel, he married Caroline Weber. She is an author and she is a professor of French literature at Barnard College. So she's accomplished in her own right. But yes, yes, same day they decided, you know, let's just let's just get all of the big, awesome accomplishments (laughs) out of the way. And speaking of big, awesome accomplishments, she has this turquoise colored caftan on in the photo, which I also highly approve of. Wait, but so like forever, their anniversary will also be the anniversary of when he got a Nobel Prize? I guess he stole the thunder a little. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, do you want to share your wedding day with a Nobel Prize? Like, it's that's I mean, suppose. and then people will be like, well, which one? Which one was the bigger part of the day? He, he's gonna have to answer that question forever. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I didn't think this would be controversial. At any rate, <laughs> uh, Kelsey, your turn. This week, Congress was actually supposed to be leaving after this week. And traditionally, towards the end of the session, after an election, that time is set aside for outgoing senators, people who have lost or who are retiring, to give their farewell speeches. Well, they're still doing that, even though they've got to stick around next week to deal with this whole, you know, shutdown spending bill thing. Well, Claire McCaskill of uh, Missouri did hers today. And she started it out by saying she doesn't like farewell speeches, but she's doing it anyway because, well, a lot of traditions have already gone out the window in the Senate. And that is kind of an indication of how things went. She kind of got into a little bit of uh, some fire, dealing some fire over at the Senate. I think the most interesting thing is when she said, we have too many embarrassing uncles in the Senate. The Senate has been so enjoyable for me. But I must admit, it puts the fun in dysfunction. Very uplifting. (laughs) Peter Morgan, an author, said no family is complete without an embarrassing uncle. We have too many embarrassing uncles in the United States Senate. (laughs) And their names are? Lots of embarrassing stuff. We've surpassed our embarrassing uncle quota. Uh, Yeah, so she's just spitting fire here on the Senate floor while everybody else is like praising their staff and talking about (laughs) how great trips to space were. like that though I you know if you're gonna give a farewell speech or you're leaving somewhere I think that you should be able to just be real about it and just say mm-hmm. you know I don't care you you guys suck you know <laughs> live your true self all right so that is a wrap for today we'll be back in your feeds as we always are when there's news to talk about and we do have a fun announcement though we are hitting the road we will be in Atlanta in early March it's the first of several live shows we're going to be doing next year called the road to 2020. So if you want to come see us at Atlanta, it is March 8th. Tickets go on sale Friday at nprpresents.org. And stay tuned for other locations that we will announce pretty soon. Can't wait to see you there. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. I'm Kelsey Snell. I also cover Congress. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.